to another exciting edition of the Design is Dead podcast. I am your host, Eldridge, and here to talk with you for another hour about the wild and woolly world of design and business and the business of design. We're very fortunate this evening to have a couple of fantastic humans on here to chat with me about a couple of things related to design. Uh, first, we've got Meredith Huschek, a human-centered designer in a large agency consulting environment. And Jessica Petrozello, who is also a human-centered designer and also slaving away in a very large design-oriented consulting agency. Welcome, both of you, to the Design is Dead podcast. How was that for an introduction? Fantastic. I like that you said I'm slipping away. So for people who have listened to this before, first of all, have either of you listened to this before? Do you understand what we're laying down here? Of course. Um, so generally, you know, we're not just looking at, I think, at the, the broader business, the broader constructs of, of making digital products and services. I mean, I think that's what it distills down to. And you can expand this out to a lot of different capabilities, you know, whether you're talking kind of traditional business strategy where you're getting into things like service design. You can also talk all the way through with delivery and implementation, everything that kind of goes into running a primarily digital business or a digital business that fits inside the context of a larger organization, of which we can talk a lot about how that's changed in the uh, past year. And so a lot of what we've dissected so far in this season of the podcast has really been looking at where business has kind of gone wrong, um, where design has fit into that, and whether it's you know helped it or hurt it, um, you know whether there's things that we've done that I think have kind of foundationally changed the way that businesses function, and where really we haven't fulfilled that value proposition at all and have just continued to be kind of cogs in the machine. So um, Jessica and I were talking about this and she had a fantastic idea to talk about this from a context of other roles. <gasps> There's other things other than design that actually factor into this stuff. And that's why I think the big topic here is really talking about project management, program management, whatever you want to call it. And, and we're going to define it here a little bit between all three of us. I'm going to start by saying that it's one of those things that somebody, a long time ago, I figured out the first time you get to a company, you really need to get good and friendly with your IT person because that's the person who gives you all your shit, right? Get your computer sets up, get your software, nothing works. So don't ever piss off the IT guys, right? You want to be good friends with the IT guys. The second thing that I learned in, in companies of any size was get to know your PMs really well, right? Get to know your, your project managers really, really well and, and be cool to them because they are making your life possible for the most part. So from the very beginning, I was very lucky to have incredible PMs that I worked with. I think I've been continuously lucky with this all the way through. Um, I've never had PMs that were anything really less than excellent for the most part. Um, I've known people who have had PMs that were less than ideal for the type of work that we do. Um, I have not necessarily experienced that. And so I've always felt it was like an integral part. And this is not just consulting an agency, right? This is in the client side perspective as well, when you're working and functioning in-house and how you're tackling very big initiatives um, that take place over, frankly, a longer time frame with a lot more moving parts sometimes. And, and project management's always been just key to that, to keeping that ship righted and keeping that sea ship, you know, flowing naturally down the, uh, down the river. But I feel like from my perspective, it has kind of faded away a little bit and that the role of project management has diffused much like design has into other things that aren't around traditional project management. And so what I'd like to do is get both of 
first of all, both of your perspectives on what project management is at a high level, and then how have you seen it potentially change or evolved as you've kind of gone through this process? So that'll be a lot of what we're talking about. We're going to take a couple of segues here and there to talk about some other things, but that's a good framing mechanism. So I wanted to start with definitions just to go. So would either of you like to jump in on that first? I've never done this with two people before. So this is a whole new concept. And I can't tell if you can tell who I'm talking to. Jessica, you were down. So if I look down, it's more like you. If I look up to the left. That's what I'm looking up at, at Mayor here. So who would like to go first? I can start. Um, I see Jessica off mute, so I'll start. Um, All right. I think it's interesting because um, even, even to some people, like really traditional people, how you said project management and program management are kind of the same thing. I think there are some very strict people that I've even worked with in the past that still put a lot that is more like PMO coordination, invoicing, financing operations with project management, as well as some of the more technology kind of attributes, scrum masters, builds, or even just like businesses that have project managers that help funnel projects, right? And then when you say program management, I think that's where design kind of mm -hmm. created a shift, at least from my perspective, because then it was like you're a little bit more responsible for that project or that product or that vision being created end to end somehow and being almost like what was a more traditional account manager role. But because you're more in the work and actually speaking that creative language, working with your team, working with clients to bring that vision to life, I've always seen the two intention, but like, you know, the way people describe it, I think it could be very confusing, right? Sorry to go geek on that, but I do think it has like many different facets, but interested to hear what Jess thinks. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I was, when I first started, thought of... I think there's a clear delineation there too, where there was program management was a bit higher. There was a little more like strategic piece with that, whereas project management was much more trying to you know keep the project going. But there was also a level of kind of being the protector and kind of the bad guy sometimes of really making sure, like you were saying, financials. We're hitting those financials. We're meeting the milestones. We're staying in scope, um, and that kind of being that a little bit abstract, abstracted layer and having that delineation kind of allowed you to be a little more of the bad guy um, because it was a little more black and white and you had this kind of really defined role that you were trying to play that was a little outside of the, the work itself. So I think I'm hearing from both, like one context kind of matters, right? So that the where the, the role, the type of organization and the type of work that's going on to a certain extent dictates it. Um, and, and that makes sense for me. I think that coming from the client side, the other direction, right? So I didn't come into agency or consulting and, and, and move into and, and stay in there. You know, I came in through in-house work to begin with and then moved out. And I think one of the things that was interesting to me was how much, and I think you use the term producer, Meredith, like, to me, that was a foreign term. Like, so the first time I went to a small agency, 
was more of a, a traditional kind of creative agency is what you would call it, right? That was more tied to, and the, the partners were more of traditional advertising type of, of guys, right? So diff, that type of agency. And the producer thing all of a sudden made sense to me. Like I understood where that term came from because you're thinking about traditional advertising. A lot of that is shoots and production and actually doing all of that stuff. Um, and I had just never experienced that before. Most of mine had been kind of, delivery project managers, right? Where you're really focusing on building those things out. And same way, like to me, a bunch of project managers laddered up to a program manager. If this was like the overarching thing you're trying to do, you may have a lot of project managers that are running different spokes within that apparatus, right? In order to get that done. And that was really under the provenience of the program manager. But really when you got into the notion of having producers, um, it just adds it up. And then obviously when you get into agile um, from a delivery perspective, now you have tons of different roles that kind of pop up, but we'll dissect what those look like and, and, and where they work and where they don't work <laughs> over the course of the, the next little bit. But it's kind of interesting, right? Because like the three of us just talked about that and it actually makes sense why, in like the seven or eight roles I've had with each of those different titles, I've literally had an identity crisis at every company I've worked at. But uh, the expectations, it's like they want you to be all of those things, but like depending on their culture and how they deliver, it's like, you know, it's, it's just really interesting because like it totally, I think depends like very top down. Like if you want someone to to your point, right? Like be a producer, even in the digital world, like that person, like when I was at a company, not even doing TV production with a title of producer doing all digital work. I mean, I was usually in design files myself when creatives didn't have time. I was opening like really basic code and helping when a client wanted a small tweak. And it's like, I remember being like, I can't believe this is my life when I started as like that, you know, that girl, that PM out of college, right? That was sitting there doing invoices for a small shop. So it's like, how did this happen? Like, why did my identity change so many times? I don't know. But then it's like, you know what a UX designer is most of the time. You know what a visual designer is most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know where they can intercept, but I don't know why in the PM world, it's been literally such a cluster. Sorry to be again tiny violin soapbox, but like it has been very challenging in my career to show up on day one because it's like, well, how do you deliver? That's usually the first question that I ask because it's like, where where do you want me at the table? It just depends on the company and how they value it. Yeah, and I'll use a little like analog from the like original career path, um, but when I was still doing archaeology and environmental services. So I, I worked as an environmental inspector on a gas pipeline in West Virginia. Learned a lot about how you put in a pipeline. But who ran the show there was the, the PM. I mean, there was a project manager there, right? We think about it in the context of office type of work, right? But, you know, that, that person ran the show, right? Because they are responsible for the logistics because it's a physical operation. They're laying 10 miles of pipe through the mountains in West Virginia. It's not the easiest thing to do. And there is a lot that goes into a type of project like that, as you can imagine, in order to get it done safely, effectively, get it delivered on time. 
So every day this person was responsible for kind of rallying the troops, laying everything out. And then at the end of the day was also had to document what they did. You know, how far did we go? What do we do? And think about raw materials. How much gas did we use? Did we damage any pipe on the way out there? Did we run out of welding materials? You know, all the things that had to go into that. So really kind of a, the integral part of that. And I don't feel like that would ever change, right? To your point about wearing different hats, I feel like if I go out on a construction site today, that's a lot, that role's the same, right? They're still doing the exact same thing and maybe they're not, right? Like, fuck do I know, right? It could very well be that that has changed and evolved as well. But my gut tells me it's still very similar roles and they're monitoring things and approaching it in the same way. But now that you've become digital, all over the place, right? Like all sorts of things you are expected to potentially do now. Um, a, that's really fascinating. I didn't know about that about your background, but B, it's interesting, Meredith's talking about like the crisis because when I started my career, I was responsible for a lot of the, I'll call them PM type responsibilities as they related to design. Those people that I worked with didn't really know what I was doing. So I had to, you know, step up and be much more uh, in tune with the progress, the issues, the risks, and be able to articulate them to, to the delivery leader um, or project manager mm-hmm. to help get the support that I needed. And then um, there was a moment where even at the same company, my role changed and I went into more of a studio model where we then had PMs. And that was a huge shift for me trying to figure out how do I work now when I have that support and somebody who does understand design in a way that I've never really experienced before and is responsible for things that I've kind of always just been responsible for and done and trying to figure out and then navigate that relationship was really interesting. Um, And I think actually part of the, uh, the prompt um, for this conversation (laughs) Uh, because now I've, I've kind of taken a, a pendulum swing and, and shifted and I'm in a new role where that's not the case. And I'm, you know, back being responsible for a lot more of um, those activities. Luckily, I have the background and experience doing it. Um, but it's, again, very weird kind of having to shift and, and re, not learn, but kind of like when you're riding a bike, you got to remember those skills and uh, what you know, what those triggers are, and, and what you do, and <clears throat> you're thinking about your status report and thinking about the issues and risks. And but even even like having done it right, and and on operating and functioning that way, when you when you get used to an environment where you have PMs that can help run interference and sort of ground some of those things, for lack of a better term, like going back to it is still a lot. Cause I mean, there's a lot that goes into it, you know? So, you know, it adds a lot of additional heft to the design roles if they have to take that stuff on themselves. Right. And frankly, I mean, come on, let's face it. A lot of designers aren't really good at that stuff. That's why we're designers. So we're going to jump out of the core discussion for a second. We're going to take the scenic route around some uh, popular topics uh, in a section I like to call the lowdown. I've got a couple of things for the lowdown I think I already shared with y'all. I think it was a, a couple of opinion pieces that kind of came out. But then the uh, the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference happened yesterday. 
Um, and there's one thing that I kind of want to key in on there. In typical Apple fashion, they had a lot of things that they're talking about for iOS 15. But I was reading this list, and I saw buried on the bottom of a list something that I thought was very interesting is the fact that something that Apple is going to roll out is something called the digital legacy. So essentially what it is is that you as an Apple consumer can now, and I think Android has a similar function to this, you can now designate someone as your digital legacy so that if you pass on, they have access to all of your files and your pictures and all the things that maybe have be floating around in your iCloud account or on your device. So you can actually claim those. It won't let you get into credit cards or payments or financial institutions or any of that, but it does allow that person to come in and actually retrieve a lot of this stuff. And I actually thought that that was a much more worthy feature to include like at the top of the the list when they're talking about the different features because I thought it was actually kind of cool. Um, and I'd be curious if you guys also think it's cool. I guess like the human side of me is like, well, that's a lot of crap of someone's I'm going to have to deal with. And it's like life is already really hard when someone passes away with physical stuff. But then it's like, I can tell you, even with my own photos, I... I save them all on an old MacBook Pro. Like that's what I use as storage. And it has so many pictures, but I'm like, I don't, like when that thing dies, all those pictures die too, because like, I don't want to buy more iCloud storage. Like I don't, and even in my head, I'm like, but does it matter? Like, I don't know, you know, I guess I'll pass it on to somebody and let them deal with my like 36 million pictures of my child. You know? <laughs> like. But so, like I said, I feel very like it's good for the world, but maybe going to suck for people that have to deal with all that data. That's a point <laughs> I had not considered, actually, especially when you think about as the boomers age, right? Um, yeah. You know, there's a, a big, there have been several articles about this that, you know, frankly, we don't want your shit is what it comes down to. I mean, that's, that's the gist. My sister and I are three years apart and she has a totally different digital presence than I had in three years. She was like all over Facebook on videos every three seconds. So like when I think about people 20, 30 years later, it's like how much stuff, Oh my God. Like, did they like, I don't know. Whereas, yeah, I mean, like I would take my grandma's digital presence right now. It's probably a computer I'm staring at right now, you know, like just kind of emptied yeah. and concert tickets on it. But like you're right though it expands that you know you think a storeroom full of you know knickknacks is bad what about 30 years of digital media tiktok videos you know <laughs> eldridge you're gonna love that <laughs> i do think it's interesting though the whole concept of that kind of legacy <clears throat> there were a number of articles a few years ago about how people you know, younger people had unexpectedly passed away and then their family members couldn't get access to like Facebook to shut down their account or, you know, whatever it is. So yep. I think there's something really interesting to having that kind of like, who's your proxy. And then, you know, they get to decide what they want to do with all of that. Some people, you know, will keep everything and others won't. A really useful piece of this would be if there was... <laughs> 
basically you could go in and just hit like a self-destruct and be like, okay, wipe them off the, like wipe them. Right. Cause that's the whole thing is you want to shut down all your accounts and Apple is only going to get you so far. Right. Cause then you've got the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams and the TikToks and the Snapchats and the, I, I'm going to stop because right. Like how do you get access to all of those things and kill the accounts? So, I mean, does the legacy give you access to all the passwords so that you can go in and cancel all the accounts? That would be really valuable. Probably more valuable than all of the data. I'd probably agree with that. Yeah. Because I mean, that can have real world consequences just from subscriptions that are sucking money out of bank accounts periodically, right? And all that type of stuff. You need to shut that stuff down. Particularly if you guys have a shared account, you know, the the spouse needs to go and figure out how to shut that stuff down, but there's so much of it and it's going to continue to be more and more of it. I read something interesting recently, how Netflix, like the impact of the climate definitely helped that people have been generally not, moving as much this year, but something I read that was interesting was that the amount of energy it takes for us all to be like Netflixing at home or using all the energy we are at home is maybe not, you know, uh, there's not as much of an offset as we thought that there was. Yeah. I've seen similar things. I mean, a lot of that is why, you know, Musk is currently turned on Bitcoin, right? And he's not accepting Bitcoin because cryptocurrencies are just horrible. I mean, they just, they suck up so much energy to mine and to run. Um, so it's, it's, there are real world environmental consequences for that. There are for streaming and there are for cloud storage as well. I mean, that's a big problem with cloud storage is the amount of energy it takes to kind of run those things. And, you know, it's important for me to have that picture of that really fucked up looking mushroom that I saw walking home from work one day because that's worth keeping, right? Uh, but that's the crap that's on your phone, right? Everybody has those pictures, right? And if you have any cloud storage enabled, that inane, ridiculous picture that you took or the picture of the inside of your pocket, which if you looked at my tens of thousands of photos that I have, there's probably 500 pictures of the inside of my pocket. Um, that's like a great you know, scrapbook <laughs> over the yeah, last yeah, 20 great, years. Right? <laughs> Can you search for that inside of my pocket and get all of them to come up? That's going to have facial recognition of lint. (laughs) All right, second topic to kind of move on to was, and Jess, you sent me this article. Um, Hopefully you all read uh, in Fast Company, so Jesse James Garrett. um, Again, for people listening at home, if you don't know Jesse James Garrett, why are you listening to this podcast, right? You were probably... In the wrong podcast, um, you know, seminal figure, I think, in in the early explosion of the industry, um, you know, so think about, you know, his work with Adaptive Path, kind of founding that, one of really the first, I think, powerhouse kind of digital experience agencies, um, you know, he very early on wrote a book on the subject that, you know, even I read kind of getting into grad school, Um you know, very much a leading figure, I think, in the in the thought of of UX and UX design, um, and he wrote a fairly inflammatory um, article about the the state of of, of UX design, um, which I thought fit very well with the theme of this podcast and had a lot of topics in there um, that I I, th- I thought were relevant. Um, 
I'm going to pull out a couple of little quotes here. And I thought this one really kind of tied into kind of the bigger topic around, you know, changing roles and, and particularly with project management and just the management of design. So this is a quote. UX processes in many organizations these days amount to little more than, quote, UX theater, creating the appearance of due diligence and patina of legitimacy that's just enough to look like a robust design process to uninformed business leaders and hopeful UX recruits alike. That is a, <laughs> that's a statement right there. Can't imagine why you like it. Um, I could have written it. Could have written it. I... So not quite a thought about the statement itself, but I've um, had a couple of times in the last six months, people talk to me about contextual inquiries and I got really excited because I haven't done one in a while. Yeah. I was going to say you're dusting it off at that point. (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah, there's definitely, I think we've had some really good experiments in trying to, bring more research into um, like sprints and figure out how to create things like council that you can really tap into um, on a frequent basis. But we're doing things really quickly and a little bit of the like has really gone away. And the ability to really think through what are you what are you trying to understand? How are you going to structure a test around that? And and then really understand if you got the answers or not. And there's not usually, in the project world, it's really hard to get the opportunity to test things again because you just kind of move on. I mean, and that seems to be the, the consistent theme is just enough, right? Just enough, not too much, right? Just enough to be able to validate some sort of hypotheses and, and move on. Um, I mean, I can say from my perspective on this is that there's things in this article that I think are right. There are things in this article that I don't think are right, right? I, I don't necessarily think that you don't just rigidly follow a process because it's a process, right? You have to be able to fit and adapt it into a context. And I think that if there's one theme of this podcast that we reinforce, it's the fact that, you know, design and business have been inextricably linked since both of them started to modernize, you know, so over the past you know, 100 years or so, they've really been together and you can't really divorce them, right? So it's always been kind of part of the business and business has always had a certain natural trajectory towards speed um, and trying to get things to market. And I think in the digital world, you can argue that that's even more important, right? It's easy to stand up a service that can compete with anything that's out there, right? If you have a little bit of investment, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should always cut corners, but it does mean that you have to evolve how those processes fit into the new reality, right? If you're, again, a smart organization that's structured to be able to iterate very rapidly and push code very rapidly, then you can experiment in real time and solve that and almost nobody's hurt and you get the data that you need in order to do it, right? So to say that you don't that you need everything needs this and I don't think this is what Garrett was saying but I think that there are adherents to say that everything that you do has to have this type of process and that's just not real realistic right it's just it's really not realistic and it may not be necessary either there's an interesting so I'll throw out the the term mindsets and not in the sense of 
uh, output that we sometimes create, but more in the sense of we've had many conversations over the past year, few years around this is more of like an inclusive design mindset or accessibility first mindset, right. but I would, I would extrapolate that back to the idea of human centered design. There is a mindset that comes with it and a general um, interest and desire to really understand how what we're creating solves a human problem. And that's not about process. The process is the things you do to get to that answer. And it can look different every time, but you're not sacrificing that being the approach you're taking. I've been reading a lot. You know, you guys know this. I read a ton about accessibility and inclusive design. And uh, Kat Holmes talks about the fact that inclusive design isn't, it's not an outcome. It's actually the process. It's a process of trying to include people who are usually not included in the process to learn something new and solve a new problem and and progress a solution towards a a better outcome that is going to ultimately be more inclusive. Uh, The flagship um, example that gets sent around all the time is the idea of the adaptive Xbox controller that then they went and actually made the packaging adaptive and accessible so that anyone could open it because the people who are buying it should be able to open the packaging. And again, it's not about the process. The process can change depending on the context as you were talking about. But the fact that you're going in thinking about human-centered design first, or I'm going to throw out inclusive design and accessibility too because I am who I am, first and not bringing that in at the end or only doing a small piece of it to say that we did it right the i you know it's idea of that being the ongoing guiding kind of principles that you're you're trying to adhere to yeah so relative to the problems that you're trying to solve mm-hmm. so so Meredith, this would be kind of interested in your perspective right so you know think about you know in your career you know, I, I'm sure you've seen it both ways, right? You know, you've seen where it is a, a bunch of exhaustive kind of upfront research, and I'm sure you've seen things that move lean or more agile or more quickly. Um, and, you know, as someone who has to be accountable, has had to be in your, 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 your life accountable for budgets and scope and timelines and deliverables, you know, what do you think about, first of all, these processes in general, um, and then, you know, whether they are not being skipped out on or shortchanged in kind of the, the current environment. It's um, it's interesting for me, and I, I feel like I agree with both of you. The third layer and how I see it is that I actually think all of it fails, which I know you'll love because that's I think what your podcast is called, right, is um, a lot of the times what's forgotten in everything that lots of these extras has talked about is actually like the maturity level for any organization taking on a design team. Mm -hmm. And so I think where I've tried to shift my career is actually really focused on, you know, I think a lot of the times we nail like CX and usability really well. And even just like, I think we've gotten so much better with accessibility and inclusive design as it relates to whatever our product is going towards. 
But where we don't spend enough time is with the organization putting out that product or that. And I, I think, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I don't know how many projects, Eldridge, we've worked on together where like our delivery is perfect, but the thing can't land because the organization we're handing it to can't wrap their head around how they can make that happen. Yep. So to me, it's actually less about process and more about just like setting the stage, ways of working. Are you going to be able to take this and understand for the six, next six months, for example, what it's going to mean for your organization to change XYZ? Like, here's the thing that we can launch at a certain timeline. But like, what is an organization going to be able to do to actually make the thing, right? Longer lasting or break down silos or start talking to each other or start to your points, Jess, like doing this process so that it is repeatable and so that they're actually keeping up with the market and expectations and not having to, for example, like they may not need as much user testing, but not know that because they can't get their act together. So to me, it's like, it's always been this really interesting like issue, at least in my career that I've watched where what I was supposed to do as well as my designers was completely on point for let's say a three month retainer with a client. And maybe it was for um, a banner ad that was supposed to go live during a big golf tournament, mm -hmm. totally like super sexy, right guys? Like making it up. But then when the thing happens after the handoff, they can't do it. Yeah. And then it doesn't happen. And then it's like, well, you guys failed. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did my team fail? Right? Like I, we gave them everything they needed, but it's like, well, they couldn't do it. And it's like, well, that wasn't a part of the agreement. Like Jess wasn't supposed to show up and teach them all how to be, go to design school in 12 weeks and understand. So to me, it's like, it's always been this larger problem that we need to get super aligned on what we're coaching you on. Yep. And we may not deliver the best product in market, but we could get you to recover and be better as an organization based on what you're asking for. That to me is where the real value add is in any kind of design. And then as you build that relationship, you can do things that are much more, this is the scope, this is why we're delivering it. But those one-off requests are just, they're going to fall flat. Well, it, it, it's an interesting catch-22 because... You know, there's a lot of things that I kind of believe in for, you know, not not just agile in the context of development, right? But when you think about agility from a business strategy perspective, you know, and how you're able to adapt, um, pivot, you know, iterate, all of the things that you need to do in order to effectively deliver a, a product to market, right? Because no matter how much upfront research that you do, particularly in digital, right? You know, it's different when you do products. So it's, it's funny because I think about some conversations we had with a automobile company, right? Um, it was really interesting for me when you talk about like failure rates, right? Because, you know, when you think about building physical products, particularly like a car, you know, from an engineering perspective, you looked at in terms of, of failure rates, right? And, and literally their threshold was less than 3%, right? That's what they were looking at for any mechanical part that kind of went into it, right? What you had to have before that could be market ready. And just the nomenclature always struck me because it's a 3% failure rate. That's the metric that you're tracking. 
not the 97% success rate. It's the 3% failure rate because you don't get to iterate on that. I mean, you, you do in the forms of recalls, but they can have catastrophic consequences if this stuff is not right when it rolls out there. You can look at the 737 Max. You can look at tons of products that have been out there, the Honda airbags, all of the things that were not necessarily done with due diligence up front to make sure that thing was ready to actually roll out there. We all primarily work in digital. It's not the same, right? It is not the same environment. And you, you've got to be able to get things in a point where you can actually get them in to market. And I think this is part of the problem is like, cause if you, if you wait too long, one, to your point, Meredith, they may never be able to deliver what you came up with anyway. Two, it could change like on a dime, right? You know, what the, the customer's needs, what the market looks like around it could easily rapidly change. And you just get caught with your pants down because you frankly waited too long to kind of roll in and somebody scooped in and beat you. And no matter what you do, that product's not going to be done anyway. So you're going to have to iterate it. You're going to have to expand upon it or pivot or do any of the things that happen once it's actually in market. So while I do think there are things that have to happen from a design process up front, can't necessarily be precious about the amount of time because, you know, for me and for I think a lot of designers who are primarily kind of researchers at heart, you never have enough time. Even your example of if I think of an automobile, and this is where I find this to be like fascinating and we've all worked in digital, so we get it. We've dealt with this challenge, but that automobile company probably was like, crap, we got to hire a digital team. So they hire a digital team. Then we get hired and we're like, this is how you could work and this is the process. So then the digital team starts working with their product team who's like, are you kidding me? Like we do this in like two week design sprints and you wanna watch us in the factory. And I'm like, for listeners using air quotes on all of this, right? Be the, you yeah. could see these people that their entire life they've like built that car right and they've done all of the safety protocols and have never screwed up in their life but then it's like this new kind of wave of process coming in to be like well we need to get to customers faster so like product team what are you going to do about it and so to me i'm always laughing because i'm like wow, we cannot come in and like swoop in literal swoop and boop which is like the one thing i hate in my entire career in the entire world but i do think that this like product versus digital versus customer presence has always been so hard on these companies that truly just have to deliver a safe reliable product it's like wait let's like why are you disrupting me right like what are we really trying to do for these customers that are digital versus you know so yeah I throw that out there only because I think the example you gave is like totally spot on. And like, those are the apps that we get a lot. Right. And then, so then I have to sit there and I'm like, wait, why are we doing this? Which is what exactly what Jess brought up earlier. It's like, what are you actually asking for? And what are we going to actually have impact on for both customers and the employees that have to deliver this thing without completely screwing it up? So let's think about, like moving forward. So given a couple of things we were talking about, so thinking about speed, you know, thinking about, um, you know, process evolution and continuing to kind of like change and move forward and how we kind of function. And then I think more importantly, thinking about 
broad ecosystems that we're solving for, right? And and not just kind of lone digital solutions, although occasionally that kind of comes up. But thinking about those in the context of a larger brand or a larger, you know, range of connected experiences. When we think about both design leadership and when we think about, you know, things like project management, where are we going, right? You know, what do we think are going to be some of the skills, traits, characteristics of good people in those roles as we look at this kind of changing environment? No pressure. That's not exactly a difficult question. No, I love this question. Um, Only because it's another one where I feel like I can reflect on my past quite a bit where um, I think there was a time more in just the kind of agency side of things where there was a time, there was a Don Draper time where you had the best idea in the room and the world was attainable enough where that gave you power, that gave you clients, that gave you trust. Um, You could just pitch that on a cardboard, you know, board or however they did it in that TV show. And they'd be like, sold, that's how we're going to sell our cereal for the next, you know, 10 years. And that was like pretty, that, that started to trickle a little bit, even in the agency realm for digital, where like, you could throw some crazy experiences out there and you were the winner. But now I think customers have gotten way too smart. And I think businesses are really struggling to keep up with that because exactly what you said, Eldridge, it's more about like, who's going to kind of be the person in the room making an impact. Like the ones that are helping maybe clients or stakeholders or executives make some of those hard decisions and those trade-offs so that a company can be adaptable and make the right choices longer term. And then I think that goes downstream right to hitting like the experiences that we design but i do think that that step is pretty crucial because just coming in and being like let me pitch you a new a new app feature like i think people just get laughed at at this day and age like it's just like yo we've heard that from 10 agencies like yesterday like tell us how our business can survive the next three years do you have that answer like those are some of the questions i think even all of my friends, no matter what kind of spectrum of company we are in on the creative side, people are looking for that, like that, those deep questions that like, you know, if you translate it to how you work with healthcare professionals or like whatever, people are like, help save me, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and we have businesses that are like, I think design can help me do it because you all have always been so innovative and it's like, Oh my God, the challenge has gotten huge. So there is that like business component, as you mentioned, and that savviness that I think a lot of our design talent is starting to pick up on. You may not be the best, you know, at your craft, but I do think there is a sense of business acronym that is starting to creep into our world because clients are looking to us as advisors, in ways we've never been advisors before. Mm-hmm. I agree. Jess, same question. So it's like, yes, you have more jobs to do. First, you had to be a PM. <laughs> then, so right. it's like, great. You know what I mean? Like, let's just keep like making that Rolodex huge, right? 
Yeah, I think a, a huge thing, and we've all experienced it a bit, and Meredith, you talks a lot about it, but how do you, how do you start to, you know, transfer your skills and help others develop, right? So whether that is your team or a client team or a completely other different team, how to like, I've been looking at a lot of Shit's Creek memes, but like, what is it like when we all shine, when one of us shines, we all shine or something? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, helping everyone to kind of progress forward. And like you were saying, Meredith, even if it's not the best, how do we incrementally make progress? Um, I think something that's going to be really interesting to see, this isn't an answer to your question, but the siloedness of a lot of organizations that we've encountered and the fact that you can't do what you were talking about, Aldrich, and, you know, test something little here and make it little change here as easily when you're not organized around something small and you're siloed and you have to kind of cross a lot of different silos to make a decision. Yeah, I mean, and that's, to, to me, the big thing that is kind of crushing all of it. And I think from a way of working perspective, it's a thing too, right? Because ultimately, you know, people like autonomy, right? You know, they like to feel like they're able to function semi-autonomously, even if they're working, you know, towards a goal that's larger than themselves. And they do feel like that they need to have, well, first of all, they have to have the data in order to make a decision. You know, so how are, you know, analytics tying into this, right? What are you measuring? How are you measuring it? How granular are you getting? And how are those metrics kind of laddering up to, you know, the, the, the larger experience that you're trying to define, right? And then how are you free as an individual working in a, you know, even if it's a, you're the small fish in the small pond working on one particular area of a digital product, do you have all the data you need to inform decision-making? And are you free to make changes when you need to, you know, so that you can actually grow and iterate that, that product? And are you in a culture that allows you to experiment without fear of reprisal, right? So that you can say, like, look, look, we got the data, we formulated a hypothesis, we pushed the piece of code to kind of update this and reflect it. Worked, great. But if it didn't, that's fine. You can revert, you can iterate again, right? And it's not one of those things where someone's going to come down and, scream at you or let you go how are you creating those more semi-autonomous teams that are able to understand what their role is how it fits in the broader context of the bigger puzzles that you're putting together but they still don't have to worry about all of this right they only have to worry about their own little piece and keep it running again with the knowledge that it is part of a broader thing um, but they don't get blinded by this gigantic goal. And they can just focus on, you know, smaller, more discrete goals. And then how are you also giving them the autonomy to solve those problems in the right way? And some of those things may be, hey, we got to stop. We got a lot of what's. We still don't really understand why this is happening. Then design can kind of go in. You can do more focused research. You can engage with customers a lot more deeply and a lot more effectively than you would in your normal practice. And then you can come up with another hypothesis that you can then test and push into market in the same way, right? And then if it's little things like the fact that, oh, crap, that thing is not rendering appropriately or the text is driving off that tooltip or the information in that tooltip is not accurate, go change it, 
<laughs> don't test it. Just change it. Do it. Get it in there. Get it in the market. But having the ability and the flexibility to go as fast or as slow as you need to in order to solve those problems. And I think that is the thing that, one, helps design. I think it helps you know, people from a project management perspective, when you think about planning and how you're kind of running different programs, I think it helps the business. I think it helps technology. I think everybody wins when you've given the teams the autonomy to decide when they need to move slow and when they need to move fast. You brought up an interesting thing, though, where in order to be able to do that test and learn, you have to kind of go back to that. What's What are you trying to solve for? What are you trying to measure, how do you know if it's working? I think that kind of goes back to that whole idea of that mindset that you're going into this with, like, why are you creating this? How does it, you know, benefit the, um, the user, whether that's, you know, uh, end consumer or your employee or some other third party um, that may be uh, consuming the experience. That does bring up a level of rigor that we, I don't, we kind of didn't touch on so much, but that idea of test and learn that really is going to make all of those pieces work together, right? It doesn't matter if you're a designer, it doesn't matter if you're product manager, product owner, developer, like everyone has to kind of understand that level and understand what you're working towards and we kicked it off talking about how you you made best friends with IT and PM. I would add to that um, my devs, whoever my developers were, I was like, okay, buddy, because they're going to be the person who actually yeah. makes it happen and tells me yes or no, or comes back to me and says, this isn't working. How do we adjust it while keeping, you know, the essence of what you're trying to, you know, create as that experience or trying to achieve? Well, and then how do you, so, and that's a, that's a, a, a good example there too. And like talking about devs, how do you get to a point where it's not a yes or no question, right? It's just a win question, right? Because ultimately, I mean, if a customer is trying to pivot, if an organization is trying to pivot to be customer focused, right, then that shouldn't be a yes or no. It should always be a yes, right? Because if the customer needs this and the customer wants this, the customer should ultimately get this. If the business is throwing up a barrier or development throwing up a barrier to prevent that from happening, because there's pretty much nothing that devs can't do. It just may take time and it may take investment, right? And ultimately, if it's something that is going to be a good positive outcome from a customer that's going to drive a lot of ultimate long-term value, long-tail value for the business, they should be free to say, we're not going to release anything this month, right? We're going to wait three months to release this feature because we're going to do it right. Um, not just what's expedient and easy. And that's another mindset change that I think has to occur where we stop saying that we're just pushing code every two weeks or every three weeks as part of a sprint, right? To get the stuff out there. Fuck it. Why do you have to wait, you know, take the time, work on the thing for three sprints, work on it for six sprints, right? To get it right get it out there. Cause that's what, again, our, our analogs in manufacturing are doing, right? Because they're not going to say like, Hey, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to put that hinge on. It would cost too much money. Well, the car is going to fall apart without the hinge and nah, we're not going to do that. Right. They'll wait, they'll figure out how long it takes to do it and they'll do it. Right. You know, and I think that that's also got to be something that businesses need to approach is the fact that you need to find the right solution 
right? Not necessarily the most expedient solution. What is the one that's going to drive value for the customer, which in turn will drive value for the business? You know, and that's another mindset change that I think that, you know, we all have to embrace moving forward as well. Yeah, and I think it's the it's one of the heavier burdens that a design team also has to carry is people will expect like the same metrics that maybe their organization tracks versus design expertise. And I find that yeah. to be very, very hard on any team, right? Trying to solve exactly what you just mentioned and speak to, for example, why you should have a development team spend more time making something right. I think we have the metrics that we have, we have the expertise of our craft to speak to it, but it's really hard to get any organization who sees data one way to see kind of benefit in data our way. This is like, you know, yet another mindset shift that I think is really important to note. It's like you have to understand that design decisions carry a different weight just because there are certain things that are so easy and simple in a customer's life that can never be tracked in old methods or revenue tracking or, you know, ways to be famous that companies are just not used to. So yep. it's just, uh, feel like I addressed like all the pain points in this conversation. I should have been a little more positive, <laughs> but I feel for design teams every day because we have to solve a lot and we have to be super savvy on a lot. So I call that out because I just think, um, data can either be like our friend or it cannot be our friend. <laughs> so all right. Any uh, final uh, notes here before we kind of wrap it up? This has been a great conversation, actually. So I yeah. I, I appreciate the, uh, the 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 idea there, Jess, and I thank you, uh, Meredith, for coming on and talking about it. So. I just wanted to hang out, so this was great. It was. Thank you both for participating in this uh, episode. And a reminder to anybody else who is listening, uh, if you would like to participate in this podcast, please drop us an email at designisdeadpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and we will uh, speak with you guys all soon.